Happy New Year, Journey. Uh, it's kind of interesting, kind of the, the rhythm of my life on weekends that I preach is uh, Saturday morning, I uh, take my message and I go to the gym and I get on a treadmill and I just kind of go over it in my head and make changes as I need to. This week at the gym, no treadmills available at the gym. So at least for a lot of people in Bozeman, their New Year's resolutions are intact as of this first week. I hope you are one of them, but uh, on Saturday mornings, get off the treadmills. Make some room for me. One of the questions uh, I get asked decently regularly is, uh, how old is your church? Because people know that we are a church plant. We haven't been around that long, and we launched in 2005, so it requires me to do a little bit of math. Um, But here's how I want to answer people in the future, because I want to be theologically correct. When they ask me, how old is your church? I want to say, you know, about 2,000 years, give or take. (laughs) Something like that. Because here's what I believe to be true. If we're going to be the church that Jesus wants Journey Church to be, in 2019, we've got to see how integrally we are connected to what happened at that early church 2,000 years ago. We've got to understand that their history is our history. What happened with them needs to be our North Star about what it is that we're trying to do around here. But I'll tell you this, if we do that and we do that seriously, it's going to immediately create some challenges for us. Because you just barely start reading and you realize that Jesus wasn't about trying to create some kind of a static gathering of believers. A static gathering where people show up, maybe grab a cup of coffee, sit down, say hi to a couple people, sing some songs, listen to a bald guy talk about the Bible, sing another song, and go home. That is not what Jesus came to launch, not static gatherings of people. Jesus came to launch a dynamic movement, a spiritual movement of God. And he intended, friends, that this movement would change the world, nothing less than that. So now I want us to think just a little bit about Jesus as a church planter. If he planted that very first church, how good was he at being a church planter? Now, if he was in America today, this is what I would say. He would be incredibly unimpressive in terms of what church plants think about valuing most often in the United States today. He would be incredibly unimpressive. As he gets to the end of his three and a half years of active ministry, here's what he would have to say to everyone. I'm heading to a crucifixion. Everyone that once wanted me to be king, these huge crowds, now they're sending me to the cross. My entire launch team, gone. Every one of them has deserted me. My family, most of my family thinks I'm crazy. But I do believe my mom is still on board. (laughs) That's about all that Jesus could say at the end of his earthly ministry. And I imagine, what were the denominational executives that were managing this church plant of Jesus? What would they say to him? I kind of imagine that they might say, we told him, we told him, don't hang out for 30 years in Nazareth. What is good in Nazareth? They're not the leaders there. They're not the movers, the shakers. 
the kinds of people that you need to move this movement ahead, they're not the right people. And we've got to talk to him about his preaching. He gives these parables nobody understands. Everybody walks away and they're saying, we're not getting anything out of this. He's just not feeding us. And then sometimes he'll even end his messages and he'll say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's like he almost doesn't care what people think. He wants them to come and talk to him afterwards if they have questions. Jesus, that's not how you build big crowds of people. And can we talk a little bit, Jesus, about how you spend your time? You need to spend a lot more time, not only on your sermons, but you've got to make those big meetings amazing. Those kinds of meetings that will draw crowds. You're misspending your time. You're spending all your time with people. Way too much time with people. And what are you doing? You're going to weddings. You're going to parties. All those things. That's what you're about. You've got to make your big meeting better. And you're picking the wrong kind of people. Jesus, you need to find those people that are movers and shakers that can help you out. Instead, it seems like the kind of people that you're pulling into yourself are the kind of people that need your help. Jesus, that is not how you build a church. Those people that are around you, they're just misfits. That's what Jesus would get as a church planting grade. He wouldn't get an A. But friends, the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God actually is what I wanted to say, is wiser than all of the wisdom that we have put together. And if there's anything that we've learned over this last year as we've been engaging in this idea of the kingdom of God, is that Jesus and the things that he tries to do are often completely counterintuitive, completely upside down from what the world tells us. People that look at the life of Jesus and just try to understand what it was that he was trying to do while he was here would say this. The central message that he came to bring was the message about the kingdom of God and building his kingdom. But he would say his method was people. You build people. If you want to build the kingdom of God, you've got to build people. That's what Jesus did. He had this close group of three guys, Peter, James, and John, that were like his confidants that he built into their lives. There were the 12 that he did lots of training with them. There was a larger group of about 70 people that he mobilized for ministry. And this group of people friends, this grassroots movement changed the world. Jesus was not about drawing crowds because you can have big crowds and not have a movement, but you can have a little crowd of the right kind of people and you can have a movement. Now, I referred to these people earlier as misfits, and there were reasons why we can say that, but I want this to be absolutely clear. These were people, men and women, that were deeply committed to Jesus, sacrificially committed to him. They were deeply committed to each other, sacrificially committed to each other. And they were sacrificially committed to this cause that Jesus had before of getting his message to the world. When you think about what it is that God is calling us to do as Journey Church in 2019, I want you to think Domino, not the pizza. I want you to think Domino. Let's watch this video together. 
to show a beer commercial at church. (laughs) I kind of think we did. When we think about what journey is called to be, domino, movement, a ripple effect of what God did 2,000 years ago, that we would be a domino in that, that would help change the world. As we unpack this series that we're calling Movement of Misfits, there's some questions that we need to ask. What marked this movement of God that changed the world? What made it so successful and enduring? Why is there a bald guy talking about this 2,000 years later in Bozeman, Montana, thousands of years later, thousands of miles away from where it happened? Why are we still talking about it? The book of Acts helps us understand that. We're gonna be looking at some snapshots from the book of Acts to help us understand what marked this movement. And we see at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Luke records for us that Jesus, following his death, burial, and resurrection, for about six or seven weeks, he preached to hundreds of people who saw that he was alive. And at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus has about 120 misfits gathered around with him on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And here's what he has to say. But actually, before I even do that, I want you to think a little bit about the kind of people that were there. What marked these misfits? They were the weak. They were the poor. They were scared, oftentimes really scared. They were unreliable. There were doubters and skeptics in the group. There were outcasts. And they changed the world. Why? We're going to learn why. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Verse eight, but, but you will receive power, power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. The message of Jesus in the book of Acts, what we just read right there is Jesus wanted every one of them to understand. Men, women, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes in and of yourself to accomplish what it is that I'm gonna be asking you to do. And now this is a message, friends. It just flies in the face of everything that our culture tells us, right? We try to tell everybody, you have everything within you. You just need to believe in yourself. You just need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Believe in yourself. You do you. But Jesus is saying, if you do you, you're gonna fail. You're gonna get tired You're gonna get burned out, you're gonna get discouraged, and you're probably all gonna quit. You need something outside of you to come into you to give you the power. This is the message of the book of Acts. 
the Christian life, this following Jesus, this being a domino in the world that has an impact, what Jesus would say is this Christian life that I'm calling you to, it's not difficult, it's impossible. It's impossible to live. There's only one person that ever lived the Christian life and that's Jesus himself. And the only chance that we have to live that life as if he lives his life through us in the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why at the very beginning, Jesus is saying, don't go out and try to do anything. Just sit here until you have power. Don't do anything without the Holy Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit on Pentecost that launched this movement of misfits. And it changed the world forever. Let's read what happened, Pentecost, Acts chapter two, starting in verse one. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, each of them all of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed how can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. And yet we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And then the text says, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What in the world? What can this mean? They asked each other. But the others in the crowd ridiculed them saying, they're just drunk. That's all. What can this mean? That's the question that we're going to unpack today. This means at least three things for everyone that is a believer in Christ. It means that through the power of his spirit, he's given us his presence, he's given us his power, and he's given us his purpose. Let's talk about presence. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, Luke records this detail in verse three. He says, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Fire. This was incredibly important imagery for every Jewish person that was there because this told them something. They understood from their understanding of the Old Testament when God's holy presence showed up, when his glory showed up, so often it would be in the form of fire. When Abraham had his covenant ceremony with God, 
in Genesis chapter 15, and he separated the sacrifice. And it says that God came between the pieces of the sacrifice. It said he came as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. A picture that we often think of when we think about God as a flame, we think about Moses. Exodus chapter three, when God shows up in his holy presence, in his voice to speak to Moses, he shows up as a flame in a burning bush. Oftentimes we think about the fact that as God led the nation of Israel throughout the book of Exodus, he was a pillar of fire by night. God's holy presence is marked by fire. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, this idea of fire, people did not run to the fire. They did not move toward it. It felt unapproachable to them. It felt scary to them. That's why they would say, Moses, you go up on the mountain. You talk to him because we will surely die. It's too scary for us. They didn't want to be by the fire. Here's the picture that happens on the day of Pentecost. That fire that was out there when God seemed distant, now that suddenly, that out there became in here. The Holy Spirit of God, the holy presence of God came to live within the life of every believer. His voice, his direction, his comfort came to live within the life of every believer. We see some foreshadowing of this even at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew chapter three, it records the baptism of Jesus. Before he had done any ministry, he was baptized. Here's what the scripture says. Verse 16, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. As the Holy Spirit descended upon the Son of God, there was a message that the Holy Spirit was bringing from the Father. You are my son. I love you. I delight in you. I am so proud of you. Here's what gets me. I just think if it was important for the Holy Spirit to bring that message to the Son of God that the Father loves him, he's a son, he's proud of him, how much more is that message important to us that we would know by the presence of God's Spirit in us that we are his sons and daughters. He loves us, he's proud of us. I think sometimes we can look at this and just say, well, I look at that baptism story and that, that was Jesus. He deserved that. I don't deserve that. Paul wants us to understand that this is true for all of us, regardless of who we are as a follower of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter one, here's how he describes what happens in us when we put our faith in Christ and the spirit comes into our life. Verse 13, he says, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. Literally, that phrase literally translated means he put his seal on you. Put that in your mind. He put that seal 
on you by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would, so that we would praise and glorify him. A seal. The Holy Spirit is God's seal on us. The imagery that would come to the mind of someone that read that, they would be thinking about likely a Roman seal where the Roman government would stamp their seal on something or a king would take his signet ring and he would stamp it on something. And what that meant when they put a seal on something, they said, this is mine. This belongs to me. Nobody messes with it. You mess with what has my stamp, you are messing with me. My power and authority rest with them. Don't mess with them or you're messing with me. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. The Holy Spirit in our life answers the question, forever, who am I and whose am I? I belong to him. It's forever God saying to us, I love you. I delight in you. I am proud of you. If you want to stop a movement of God in the life of his people, get people to doubt this. Get them to wonder, what is God really like? Does God really care about me? Is God really with me? Is God really for me? Because when we start to answer those questions and the answer comes up, no, God becomes distant again. He's out there. We don't trust him. A movement of God is marked by people understanding his presence means I belong to him. He's not out there. He's in here. But it's not just his presence that God gives us in the day of Pentecost. And when we put our faith in him, he gives us his power. And I'm going to say it again because I think it's that important. This life that Jesus is asking us to live, to follow him, and to be a part of building his kingdom, it's not difficult. It's impossible. The only way that any of us has any hope of living that kind of life is if Jesus lives his life through us in the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what we need to live the Christian life. If you read the book of Acts, and I hope you do, as we go through this series, just read the book of Acts. Take some time to look at it. Put yourself into the story. You're not gonna find any self-help chapters in the book of Acts, I promise you. It is about dependence. It is about surrendering and allowing the spirit to do his work in our life in his power. But power to do what? What is it that the Holy Spirit actually empowers us to do? What does he want to do in my life? Let me just give you a short list. In the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. The Holy Spirit wants to bring comfort to you in the midst of pain and suffering and difficulty. And if you've walked with Jesus even for probably five minutes, you know what it's like to have pain and suffering in this world. The Holy Spirit wants to be your comforter. The scripture refers to him as the spirit of truth. It was this spirit that moved the authors of this book to write the things that they wrote. And it is this spirit that actually helps us to understand the truth of this book. The term that we use is illumination. 
He shows us what is being said there. Have you ever had those times where you're reading something and it just seems like it jumps off the page to you and you know, that's for me right now. That's God's spirit at work. He's the spirit of truth. He wants to be your guide. He wants to give you nudges and promptings to help you stay on the path that God has for you. The Holy Spirit convicts because even for all of us, even when we're trying to be on that path with him, there are times that we step off of that path and he convicts us and lets us know you're stepping outside. Get back on the path, repent and turn back to God. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit brings unity. He's called the spirit of unity. When we read the scriptures and it talks about this supernatural love that was evident in the lives of the early church, it's the Holy Spirit is that thread that knits all of our hearts together and creates that commitment to one another. The Holy Spirit helps develop the character of Christ in our life. We did a whole series this summer on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He wants to build those things into our life. It's his fruit of the Spirit. He wants to help us witness. He wants to help us see the opportunities where God is at work in the lives of people and give us the courage to move toward those opportunities and bring the love and the life of Christ to others. This Holy Spirit brings gifts to everyone that is a believer in Christ. Gifts that we are to use to love and to serve one another. It is a team effort. And the Holy Spirit does all of that. And that's not all. That's just the ones I had time for today. In the scriptures, the Spirit is called, the Greek word is pneuma, meaning air wind, where we get the word pneumatic. But he is the force, the wind in our sails to live the Christian life. And just like my lungs right now, if they don't have air, I die. I am a corpse, a believer in Christ, a church that doesn't have the wind, the air of the Holy Spirit moving in and through it is a corpse. We're dead. We're good for nothing. That's why Jesus said, wait, wait till you have power. And we begin to experience that power, friends, as we simply learn to hear his voice. There's so many voices in this world, voices in your own head, voices of people around you, voices of the enemy. We need to learn to discern his voice out of all those, his nudges, his promptings, his whispers. We need to learn to hear them from all the other voices and learn to just say, yes. Holy Spirit, whatever it is that you're asking me to do, I'm gonna say yes, because that's where transformation happens. When we learn to hear and respond to his voice. The last thing that we understand from Pentecost is that God gives us his purpose. He gives us his purpose in what happened at Pentecost. His purpose to take the message to the world. I wanna reread Verse seven and eight and part of 11. It says, they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And then verse 11. And we all hear these people. All. Everyone. We all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. Could God be any more clear? This movement, this message 
about the greatness of who God is and what he's done for us, it is for everyone, absolutely everyone. I mean, Luke does his best job. I, it was, I did my best reading that I could with pronouncing all those names, but he just wanted to paint this picture of all the people that were there from east to west, giving the picture to everyone. This is for everyone. Nobody is outside the love of God. He's got his sights and his heart on everyone. There's room and a seat at God's table for everyone. Nobody is outside of it. And that is the beauty of what happened at Pentecost. I love what Michael Green said in his commentary on the book of Acts. He says, the gospel is good news for all, simply and solely because all stand in need of it. Black and white, slave and free, Jew or Greek, educated and barbarian. All of these apartheids of antiquity were smashed by this totally new thing the gospel of Christ. You could not find it anywhere else. I love what he says. It was intensely beautiful, profoundly threatening, and utterly unique. This was something that only the Spirit of God could have made happen. This community of people that was radically inclusive to everyone uncomfortably inclusive. People that had had no reason and no desire to be a part of one another's life now suddenly became brothers and sisters because of the gospel. But friends, it was beautifully inclusive. That's what made it so attractive to the world around it because it was so different. Nothing in the world could replicate this apart from a move of God. And that beautiful movement was launched. Dominoes began to fall. Domino after domino after domino. Journey, God is asking us to be a significant domino in what it is that he is doing in the world still today. This message, this movement is for everyone and every one of us has a part to play. There's something interesting, in my opinion, about the book of Acts. Luke is a fantastic writer, a brilliant man, but the book of Acts, it's the only book in the New Testament that really doesn't have an ending. We just kind of show up at the end of Acts 28, Paul's in house arrest in Rome, preaching the gospels to the Gentiles, and then it just stops. There's no close to it. Is Luke a bad writer? No. Luke is brilliant. And friends, I don't believe that that was an accident. Luke wants us to understand that new chapters to the book of Acts are continually being written as fast and as far as the people of God will take them, as they allow God's spirit to move in and through them to have an impact in the world around them. As we spend some time over these next several weeks looking at the book of Acts, I wanna guard you against what I think might be a danger. A danger of looking back and reading the book of Acts and seeing it as too distant from today. Like, oh, that's just interesting what God did back then. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about us being a part of that domino that was launched 2,000 years ago, 
Don't read that as a story back then. Write yourself into the story. Imagine you being a part of what God was doing in and around the book of Acts. Because here's what I believe to be too. When we write ourselves into the story, when we see the magnitude of what it is that God launched then, I want it to build a hunger in us. I want it to build a hunger in me, a desperation, a dissatisfaction with the status quo. God, you can do more. You did it before, God. You can do it again. Why not now? Why not today? Why not in my life? Why not in Journey Church? Why not in the Gallatin Valley in 2019? I want us to have a hunger, a desperation for more. But friends, here's why I gave you this domino. I want you to remember the things that we talked about today because I think they are so foundational to what it's gonna mean for us to be the kind of church that God wants us to be in 2019. One thing when you look at this domino, I want it to remind you that if you are a follower of Jesus, always you belong to him. Who you are, And whose you are is a question that doesn't need to be answered. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life answers that question forever. And here's what I want you to think about when you think about this domino. I want you to think about what John wrote in the book of Revelation. He talks about a white stone. And I want you to think about that white stone when you see your domino. Here's what he says. Anyone with ears to hear, must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And, and I will give to each one a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. I read so much this week on all the different theories that there are on the significance of the white stone and what it means, but here's what I want you to grab from what John said. This is what we know. The name that's written on it, there's only two people that are gonna know what that name is, God and you. God saying, you belong to me. You are my, when I think about this, I think about what it's like to have a close friend. And sometimes you have these nicknames for one another that it's just kind of between you two because you're intimate with one another. Sometimes that's true with a a close couple or lovers. They have these names for one another that nobody else knows, it's just between them. There's a white stone that God has with your name on it. You belong to him. Who you are and whose you are was settled. The spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the sons and the daughters of God. But when you look at this domino, I also want you to think about the power that God offers to us. And here's how I want you to think about it. Because what I said earlier is that power that we experience, we experience as we learn to hear and respond to those nudges of God. This is the kind of domino that I want to be and that I want everyone in our church to be, the kind of domino that's like this, that is standing at attention, ready to listen to the voice of God and move 
when he says whatever it is that he wants to say. Here's what happens when a domino's in this position. It only takes a tiny little nudge from above and it moves. But when it's laying on the table like this asleep, you can just sit there and pound it all you want and it's not gonna do anything. This is what we need to be. The power is found as we learn to hear and respond to those nudges from above and we move. As I've been thinking about this for my own life this year, I was just thinking about what I want to be true is that I don't just process these nudges and move on them. I wanna actually write some of them down. What am I hearing from God and how am I responding to in obedience? So this year, I've got a little part of my journal and I know this sounds absolutely cheesy, but I'm calling it my nudge notebook. Is I just wanna record, God, where are those places where I've sensed, sensed your nudges? your promptings, those convictions? And how did I respond to it? Because if change happens from me listening, if power happens from me learning to listen and respond to those nudges, I don't wanna miss one. And I don't think you do either. We need to learn to listen to the nudges of God. But lastly, we need to understand as a domino of God, that he calls us to his purpose. And part of our purpose in building the kingdom of God is that we would actually influence other people. We don't wanna be a domino that just sits by itself because it can't influence. The purpose of dominoes when we line them up is that we hit one that responds and it starts a chain reaction in the lives of other people. Let's be those kind of people that are living in a chain reaction with people around us that we would look at that domino and ask ourselves, is my life bumping into other people? Are there people that don't know Jesus, where I work, where I live, where I study, where I play? Are there people around me that I am bumping into and bringing the light and the life and the hope of Jesus into their life? Am I around other believers in Christ that I'm intentionally investing in them and I'm allowing them to be invested in me? Friends, this is what it's gonna take for us to build a movement, to build a movement that has a domino effect that impacts us, but impacts our valley. Part of me just wants to say, are you in? I am. Let's be in. It would be silly for me to end a message like this without giving you an opportunity to just pause and be quiet and reflect and just ask the Holy Spirit of God that lives in the life of everyone that truly follows Jesus, let's let him speak. I wanna let him nudge your life. Let him prompt your life. I wanna give you a moment to respond to him. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you to speak. We welcome you to move. Move in our lives. As individual followers of you, but Holy Spirit, would you move as a collective? Jesus, we need to know that you're with us and your Holy Spirit tells us we're your sons, we're your daughters. Thank you. Thank you that that's true. Holy Spirit, we want to be about your purposes. But we know that that can't happen until we learn
to hear and respond to your voice. Thank you that you're willing to nudge and to prompt. We come to you today and we just want to say yes. Whatever you nudge, whatever you prompt, the answer is yes. God, we love you and we trust you. And Jesus, it's in your powerful and resurrected name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.